Eric, you have a book that's coming out. Right now we're filming this in August, but by the time this airs, it'll be September, late September, I believe. And your book is called The Idea, The Seven Elements of a Viable Story for Screen, Stage, or Fiction. I'm curious what prompted you to write the book? Yeah, so I've been a screenwriter for like 25 years and um, for the last about 10 years I've been teaching screenwriting. I've been working one-on-one -on -one with a lot of writers as like a consultant or coach and I've been just reading a lot of scripts, film and TV scripts, many, 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 many scripts, right? So you, in trying to help writers and to try to kind of codify principles of writing, which is always a touchy thing because sometimes people feel writing can't really be taught or shouldn't be taught. Um, you know, I, I've really tried to figure out what are the things that one really needs in a story idea because people don't necessarily seem to know when they're writing, but when someone reads someone's script, they often are having negative reactions. And what are the reasons for those reactions? I really made it my business to figure out like what are the sort of essential things that people are reacting to, not only when they read a script, but when they even hear the idea for a script. Because the reason the book's called The Idea is that I've really come to believe that the most important part of the process most writers bypass too quickly, which is selecting the idea and understanding what makes a viable idea. Um, that is so important to the eventual success of any project. And, and that might seem obvious, but the average writer, myself included, tends to want to get to writing. They tend to want to just start structuring, outlining, and writing the script. So you pick an idea. You often don't vet the idea with professionals or friends or anyone. You just kind of like, I sort of like this idea. I think I'm going to write this. And then you go about writing it. Um, whereas in the industry, if you have a manager or an agent, what I've learned is they'll want you to run your ideas past them before you even start one. They don't want you to spend your time and energy on something that they don't think is viable in the marketplace to begin with. So if you're trying to write for that marketplace, if you're trying to get or maintain a, a manager and an agent and move forward you know, in like the Hollywood marketplace, what's gonna happen to you is your representatives are gonna shoot down a lot of your ideas, which has happened to me. And they're gonna really stop you at the idea stage and wanna hear the log line or the basic, the basic premise or pitch. So I, as a writer, having agents had to live that lifestyle of I got to impress my agents first, right? Once I'm lucky enough to have one. As someone reading people's scripts as a kind of consultant or teacher, I've, I now realize what my agents were thinking because most of the things people bring to me finish scripts. The most of the notes that I have on their scripts are notes I would have had on the basic idea if they had just brought it to me when it was a log line or a 30 second pitch or a one page synopsis, the kind of thing you'd put in a query. Um, so, um, but most writers don't kind of realize that because they haven't vetted the idea with anyone. So I've been blogging for five to ten years now, you know, little tips and things, that little pieces of wisdom that I feel I've come up with having read all these scripts and seen the kind of things that I see uh, writers doing. And the blog eventually led to the idea to do a book. And the book is about, let's focus on the idea. What makes a viable idea? It's not a book about the whole process of screenwriting. It's not about story structure per se. It's not about writing scenes. It's not about navigating the business, although all those things are touched on. It is exclusively about what makes a viable idea. And let's slow down writers and really work on getting the idea right before we you know, write the script or even outline the script. So what makes a viable idea? So I came up with this little acronym 
of the word problem because I feel that every story is really about a problem. And it's all about, you know, when someone's reacting to your script or your pitch or your logline, what they're mostly thinking, consciously or not, is, okay, what's the problem at the center of the story? Does this problem sound really compelling and entertaining to watch? Is an audience going to care about this problem that this main character or these characters are trying to solve, whether it's film, television, or even commercial fiction or theater, I think the same kind of basic premises of you know, how story and ideas for story work applies to all of them, which is why the title mentions um, stage and fiction. They're looking at what the problem is. What's the nature of the problem or what's the nature of the goal for the main character, right? So I took problem and I created this acronym from the letters in the word problem. And the book is basically a presentation of these seven elements that start with those seven letters. And those are the elements that I think successful, commercially viable stories that would interest an agent, a manager, a producer, an editor, et cetera, tend to have. You want to hear what they are? Okay. <laughs> so it's just quickly, and we can go deeper if you want. The problem at the center of the story needs to be punishing, relatable, original, believable, life-altering, entertaining, and meaningful. So some of those words I could have used different words, but they wouldn't fit the problem, so I kind of made it so sure. they all lined up with those seven letters. That's great. And, and did you, before sort of even formulating the idea for this book, no pun intended, um, go through other scripts and really hone in on what's the problem? Let's say some of the blockbusters or maybe even indie films, what really is the core of this problem and then work backwards? Well, yeah, I do that all the time. It's just a natural thing. Whenever I'm watching anything, I am assessing what is the central. To me, that's what the story is. What's the central problem here? Uh, we could talk examples if you want, but pretty much any genre, it's about characters who are kind of punished usually as they're trying to resolve some situation. And so it's just become second nature to me to think in terms of what's the problem at the center of any TV series, TV episode, movie, story in general. And of course, when I look at someone's script or I just see the logline even, I'm, like I said, I'm looking at what's the problem here. And sometimes the logline doesn't even make the problem clear or it focuses too much on the internal problem for the characters because sometimes writers confuse like internal character arc with external problem. And great stories generally have both, but the external problem is kind of the part that people really want to know about when they are assessing your idea. It's like the external problem has to be really solid. The internal arc is a little more optional, but you've got to have that big external problem typically in a commercial type project. And so that's what I'm talking about more than the internal, what the character needs to learn and how they need to grow stuff, which is the arc or the theme or the flaw, you know, that kind of stuff. Sometimes we writers tend to focus a lot on that and make that drive all of our efforts. And what I've learned is it's, it tends to be better to let that stuff stay a little flexible until you've gotten the sort of external problem worked out and even kind of structured out a bit. Because sometimes your sense of what the theme is or what the character's growth should be will change and shift once you've really explored the external problem, the external challenge that they're you know, every scene is typically about them grappling with and trying to resolve. Well, I love that you've chosen the word punishing, whether it was just a coincidence <laughs> because it starts with P, but because you're putting yourself in the protagonist's shoes and it seems like if you're looking through life through the lens of that character, that it is a punishment. For, you know, that they, that they are enduring things that are unfair to them. So I, I like that you've chosen that as because it, it really is sort of the journey of it. 
of, of a character to see it as this is a punishment and I've got to prove that I'm innocent kind of thing. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think even in, even in comedy series on television, one thing I often find myself reminding myself in my own projects and telling other writers that come to me and want feedback and stuff is that your characters should really be in hell and under siege pretty much all the time. Like even if you watch a show like 30 Rock, I mean, these are slightly dated references now, but like Everybody Loves Raymond, but I could also talk about like Veep or Glow or current series. If you really look at what's going on for the characters that we're following, it's basically they're suffering. They're under siege. They're in a sort of hell and they're trying to get out of it pretty much every episode. For us as an audience, it's fun to watch. It's fun to watch their reactions to things and just sort of how their characters operate and interact in a comedy, in a drama or a thriller. It's fun in a different way for the audience. It's fun for us. It's never fun for them. You know, even in, even in the, you know, the, the Save the Cat book, the Blake Snyder book, um, he talks about the fun and game section, which is the first half of act two in a screenplay in his world. And I think he makes some great points, but the fun and game section, even in that section of the movie, which he calls fun and games, I'm all often telling people, I don't think your characters should so much be having fun or enjoying the situation. Your characters are kind of under siege. Even in the first half of act two, they're kind of struggling, suffering, being punished by the situation they're in, the upside down world they find themselves in, the problem or goal that they're trying to resolve, which they're an underdog and they're overmatched and the world is not giving them what they want. That's pretty much every story in my view in every genre. So. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting how often writers tend to write scenes of characters kind of getting along and kind of having victories. And I, and I usually say that you know in a story, the victories generally only come at the very end. If they come anywhere other than the very end, they're usually very short-lived and often overshadowed by the bigger problem that still demands resolution. Because what keeps the drama or the comedy moving is that sense of there's a problem, I'm trying to solve this problem. There's this goal, I'm trying to reach this goal. Problem and goal are kind of two sides of the same thing. Some stories, the goal is just to solve the problem. In other stories, the goal is its own positive thing and the problem is I haven't reached the goal. So it's kind of like, problem slash goal, I think of it as like the same thing. But that being difficult and unresolved and also changing and evolving and usually getting worse and more complicated over the course of the story or the TV episode or the TV series is kind of this key thing that I'm always looking at. And I think audiences and certainly industry professionals are looking at and evaluating consciously or not, do I feel the problem is compelling and big? Is it getting worse? You know, are the characters struggling? Is it changing and evolving, but generally in a direction of worse and more difficult until the kind of final battle at the end where the resolution finally happens? So that's why problem is that word that I think I'm always referring to when I'm talking about a story. So you say that writers don't spend enough time making sure that the idea that they're sort of putting out there is viable. Wouldn't you, you think that most writers are choosing an idea that's very personal to them in some sense, even if it's, the story's not really about them, it's a core idea that affects them. Why wouldn't it translate if it's so personal and deep and rich to that writer? Wouldn't putting something so sort of deep and personal that the writer is choosing to focus on 
be enough to make the script viable? Well, that's a great question. First, let me say, when I talk about writers, I'm talking about myself too, because I'm a writer and that's still the main thing I do. And I make these things that I might call mistakes. So it's not me on high saying, oh, those writers, what idiots they are. It's me saying we all naturally do this stuff. I just want to make that clear to, to your audience. Sure. Um, but that's a great question. And, and I've made, I, don't, I wouldn't call it a mistake, but I've done this myself many times, which is write something that is personal to me that I think I felt something deeply about, so audiences will too. And one off, you know, one hopes they can pull that off. And there are some pitfalls in that approach that often happen, um, one of them being that we so internalize what we went through, what we were thinking and feeling, and why it mattered so much to us in our life, to put it actually on the page in a way that audiences looking at a character based on us, having experiences based on ours, for the audience to get those things that are internal to us is harder than it looks. And often just because we felt it deeply doesn't mean that we can write a character feeling that same thing deeply and the audience will get it. Sometimes they will, sometimes those are the best movies, but a lot of times they won't. And a lot of times that thing that we went through in our personal life that mattered so much to us doesn't necessarily have the ingredients of an entertaining to watch story for an audience, like a movie or television audience, a story that builds and complicates and gets worse in a really fun to watch way. Often when we're writing real life, and this is any kind of true story, and I've worked a lot on true stories and people come to me a lot with true stories because I worked on Band of Brothers, for instance. It's, it's kind of where I got my start professionally. Um, what I've really learned is that true stories are sometimes harder than fiction because you, um, real life doesn't have story structure typically real life doesn't have the things that we writers have learned that audiences need to be really emotionally invested and entertained and to stay emotionally invested and entertained over the course of an hour half hour or two hours it just doesn't and writers have to bring a lot of manipulation to a true story to make it comprehensible to an audience and to make it be that kind of emotional journey with that kind of classic narrative build to it and entertainment value to it. It just doesn't come naturally. We have to kind of impose it. So a lot of times the things we've gone in our own life, we don't have perspective on them. We can't see them from that third party person that has a very different life from us and how do we portrayed on the page or on screen in a way that they will be really entertained and invested in this character like us. And often we aren't able to write that character with enough perspective and enough clarity so that people will get what they're going through because to us it's already so obvious. It's like a given. It's inside of our head, but getting it outside of our head and onto the page in a way that others will really get it, I think is harder than it looks. And so when you're identifying an idea for a story, coming from a place that is something passionate to you or that you have experienced, I think is a good start, but it's usually not enough. You usually have to sort of test it by putting yourself in the shoes of a sort of third party anonymous viewer with a different life story than yours. How do you make this something that's, that's universal? Because our own pain and our own drama and our own situations don't necessarily have deep and compelling universally relatable elements to them that anyone or millions of people would be able to instantly grasp and be emotionally invested. I use that term a lot, emotional investment, because to me that's the key thing we're always going for. And as an audience, that's the key thing we want. We want to care. And a lot of this focus on the idea is about finding an idea that people 
you know, people, strangers, millions of strangers will have a chance of really caring about this idea, caring about this character, these characters in this situation. What makes them care? And so these seven elements, a lot of it is about me trying to put into words, here are the qualities that I think are inherent in stories that can make an audience care. And when it's coming from our own life experience, a lot of times some of those elements could be missing and we may not realize it. When a writer brings their work to you, or even from hearing from agents who've had a writer bring work to them, what sort of telltale signs appear when it's so deeply personal and you can tell that that writer doesn't have enough perspective? Whereas when you can maybe tell that it's sort of loosely based on a, a multitude of people and there's a little more definition to the problem, or maybe there's not, and I'm, I'm just projecting that. I don't yeah, know. I don't know if there are telltale signs because you never know when you're reading something, is this the author's own life story? I mean, you can suspect it, but you know, some, you know, I, I would say the absence of some of these elements we're talking about, the, like the seven elements of what the problem, you know, the absence of those is the main thing that a reader is noticing that it isn't that entertaining to watch, or it isn't, the stakes aren't life-altering, it doesn't seem like, or the character isn't relatable, or the problem isn't punishing enough, or what's going on isn't believable enough. You know, those kind of things are what we're just noticing right away. Once we notice them, we may speculate that, oh, this is because it's their own true story and their own true life situation doesn't have those elements, but we don't really know for sure. So I don't know that I can say, oh, I can tell this is like a too personal, true story thing necessarily, unless I really know the writer and it's pretty obvious that it's their life. It's more that the sort of absence of some of those elements not appearing as strongly as we would want makes us less enthused about the script, and it may or may not be because it was a personal, you know, story like that. Do you remember the first feedback you received from a third party that these elements needed to be more pronounced? And, and <laughs> oh, yeah. how was that for you? Oh, devastating <laughs> and terrible. And the oh, worst okay. moment of my life up to that point. Oh. Which I guess I had a pretty good life if the worst moment of my life is having someone, you know, tear apart a script. But I mean, so, yeah, some of the early scripts that I wrote, I would probably cringe at now that, I mean, some of the stuff I write now, I'd probably cringe at six months from now. <laughs> it's not an easy field, is what I'm saying. You don't always have perspective on what you're writing yourself and whether others are gonna respond well to it. But, you know, I had people say there's just not enough conflict. It needs more conflict. And I, in my early days, thought conflict meant like people arguing or fighting or car chases or something. Like, I didn't really know what that meant exactly. And so I didn't write scripts and I didn't love movies that were all about people constantly arguing or fighting or car chasing, right? So I thought I was writing something that was the kind of stuff I would like, but a third party reading it said, you know, you did some good things here, I just felt it needed more conflict. I didn't really know what they meant. Now after doing it for years and reading a lot of scripts, I know what they meant. And to me, conflict is synonymous with problem. So it's not that your character has to always be in in obvious conflict with other people and expressing and fighting all the time or arguing. It's that they have to be in conflict with their situation, meaning they have to have problems. Whenever your character doesn't have a problem and isn't actively even struggling against or trying to resolve a problem, the audience tends to check out a bit, right? So that usually does lead to conflicts with other characters trying to solve a problem 
in life generally leads to some interpersonal conflict because a lot of problems that are big enough for a movie that we want to solve or big enough for a TV show are problems that involve relations and interactions with other people. So there will be conflict, but it's not that limited version of what I thought conflict meant when I got that critique. So the problem not being punishing enough, which is like the letter P, the first one in the, you know, in the word problem in my book, was probably the first thing that I grappled with in my own stuff of people saying it's just not enough conflict, meaning it's not a big enough problem. It's maybe not a life-altering enough problem, which is the L word, which is about the level of the stakes of the problem. Why does it matter that they solve this problem? Why does the audience care whether they solve it or not? Is it big enough and is it relatable enough, which is the R word, where the audience is starting to feel like it's our problem too. We are standing in the shoes of this character as they try to solve this problem and we feel something about it. We want it to be solved because it's kind of like it's us now. That emotional engagement with the character is like a really key thing we're trying to achieve as writers that is not easy to achieve and sometimes writers don't realize the things necessary to kind of achieve that, which is a lot of the kind of relatable stuff. So my first critique of something not punishing enough was probably also wasn't big enough stakes. Why do people relate to this character? Because you didn't find that sort of universal hook that pulled people in. Um, the character didn't have those elements that make the audience just start to feel like I'm bonded with them, which is such a key part. For me, like the beginning of any screenplay, what Save the Cat calls the setup section, I think, the first 10 pages, it's all about achieving that bonding with the audience and uh, and you know people often talk about you know people put down a script in the first 10 pages if it's not grabbing them and writers tend to think oh you grab them by having really exciting spectacle in the beginning with with really high stakes what action or entertainment value which is always helpful but to me the more important goal in those first 10 pages is to introduce your main character at some length and at some breadth and in some depth in such a way that the audience starts to see what the key things are that would make us care about them. What makes them a compelling, relatable person, even before the main story problem has kicked in? What makes us just kind of want to follow them? You know, I mean, Save the Cat says they save a cat, which makes us like them because they do something self-sacrificing and helpful. That's a sort of semi-joke uh, you know, premise, I think, that Blake Snyder came with, just have your character save a cat. But I think what he was really getting at was a really vital thing that writers tend to sometimes bypass or not understand, which is give us a reason to bond with that character before your story really kicks in. Um, so I probably failed in all those and other ways in my early scripts and maybe some later scripts that made people go, uh, needs more conflict. So what about the opposite? What if someone says, well, I'm never going to get notes like that. I'm going to have it packed with conflict. And then it's actually too much. It's not subtle. It's not under the surface. Like I'm just thinking of Sharp Objects. I watched the first episode last mm -hmm. night. And you can see seeds planted. Mm -hmm. the, the conflict, some of it's obvious, some of it's not. And you're wondering, hmm, there was a look at the end with this one character. I think there's going to, you know, and it like hints at it. And then it, it keeps you hooked in because you're like, I want to see something go down here, yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't yet. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's like it's not that you have to hit over, hit people over the head with with constant like, you know, screaming matches or fights or anything like that. To me, it's that there has to be a central problem and a central character faced with that problem that the audience buys into early on and says, OK, I care about this problem. I want to see this problem get solved for this person by this person. Once you have them feeling that way, 
then you can play out the resolution of that problem over a lengthy period of time. You don't have to get right to it in a really, you know, sledgehammer kind of manner. But the, the, the problem has to be big enough to begin with. It has to be grabby enough to begin with. Then how they evolve in dealing with the problem and how the problem evolves. And if it's a mystery, how the cards get turned over and the clues get revealed and the leads get followed up on, that's part of the fun for the audience is that that stuff takes time. You just don't want to have long periods where none of that's happening at all and things seem kind of fine. That's what you want to avoid. Things are never fine in a story. There's always that simmering you know, problem overshadowing everything, I think, in a compelling commercial story where the audience is going, I want to see this resolved. The reason I'm binging on this is I want to see this problem or these problems get resolved. But what, what they really want to see is they want to see how the problems build and complicate and twist and turn and evolve and then later get resolved. Because you know once it gets resolved, it's kind of over. So if you're binging on 12 episodes or whatever it is, you probably know no real resolution is going to happen until the end of the 12th, if then. But on the way, how it's evolving is the thing that's fun for us to watch as an audience. Have you given notes to someone to, hey, tone it down, this is too much right here. Um, it's too explosive and it's like almost like beating the, the, the reader over the head a little bit. I don't think that happens very much unless what they're doing doesn't feel believable to me. Um, that's the sort of the B and problem is, you know, believable. And, and that's a bigger, more common issue than people might think, where readers are reading their stuff and going, I don't believe this character would do or say this. Or maybe it doesn't, it feels contrived in some way. It feels like the writer is trying to force something that isn't organically coming out of the lives and desires and emotions and personalities of the characters. So on, to some extent, the characters do have to drive the story. Everything they, they're doing has to feel like it could and would really happen. They could or would really say or do those things in those moments. So it's not that I'm ever saying, oh, there's too much conflict. You're trying to make the problem too big, per se, unless in doing that, it's straining believability. Because even though stories have usually something exaggerated about them or even sometimes a fantastical element that they're based on, like there's a zombie apocalypse or there's vampires in the high school or whatever, even though they have that kind of stuff sometimes, and even in a comedy you're exaggerating characters a little bit for comedy, I believe there still has to be this basis of reality that we're seeing human beings that we can accept seem real doing or saying what we think they would really do or say in those situations. And a lot of times in a lot of scripts, there will be moments and scenes and characters that don't feel that way, that feel over the top, unbelievable, um, reacting in ways that seem forced for the sake of more conflict or more comedy or entertainment value or more action. So that's where I might sometimes feel that something needs to be toned down so that it feels like it's all coming from a real place. When in doubt, always I say go for the real. I heard somebody say this once, a professional writer at a, at a panel, and it's so true. You hope that your concept is compelling enough, people are going to care, there's something entertaining at its core, but as you start plotting it out, I always say start with what's real. At every moment in the story, what would each character be really thinking, feeling, doing at this point, given their situation? How do you make them do things that feel totally believable and just totally real? Audiences love it when it feels real, but still is entertaining and compelling and all those other things. And achieving that level of realness that feels really authentic 
is is difficult, but it's really special when a writer is able to just write with like authenticity that is just like, I absolutely suspend disbelief. I, you absolutely have me. I believe these people are real. I forget that I'm watching something fictional. Um, so when you can do that in the context of having these other elements of a story, then I think you're really in good shape. Can you think of a film in particular that, that was like one of the first that did that for you? Well, I mean, I think most really great and successful movies and TV shows do have reality, do have that basis of reality, which is why they work. If they didn't have it, I don't think they'd be successful. So I think you see that in most successful things that there is that sense of, I believe these people and what they're doing. I believe the reality of the situation that the writer has set up. Having said that, there are certain shows, certain movies that I can think of, maybe not the first that did it, but that feel they did it to a really extreme level, like The Wire on HBO, that series, uh, you know, to me kind of made every other cop show that had ever come before seem almost kind of like cheesy or fake in comparison because it felt so real. And when you can achieve that level of realness, audiences, critics, agents, producers, they all respond to that. If you have these other kind of elements of story in place, that level of realness can really make your stuff special. Um, so that's one example. The Sopranos was also a show that even though it, was a, it wasn't trying to be as real as The Wire, when I would watch The Sopranos, I would kind of like just buy it. For some reason, that was a show that I felt like, I don't feel like I'm watching actors and writers and directors. I feel like I'm watching these like real people that are really living in this subculture at its best, which I think is the reason why shows like The Sopranos and The Wire are voted like some of the best written shows of all time, because they obviously did that for a lot of people. Or even Forrest Gump. I mean, I could I could think that that is a real person that if you go on Wikipedia, they'll oh there he is and you know he's <laughs> yes and he, he he beat this person in ping pong and I mean <laughs> it's believable enough as as wild of a ride as his life was that that could be a real person. There's just something about the the writing and and drawing you into this sort of innocent world. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a very opposite example where it's a very fanciful story, sure. but somehow it convinces the audience for those two to three hours that this is a real thing and nothing is making them go, okay, it's not real anymore. I don't get, I mean, there are people that don't like the movie, but I don't think there's much that makes people just check out because it doesn't seem like it could be plausible. You know, the characters, once you establish who they are, they behave in ways that make sense based on who they are and what their psychology and their backstories are and what their current desires and situations are. And that's where it's like the writer, Eric Roth in this case, is going for the real, I think, is taking you know the situation, the people where they're at and saying, what is real to have happen next? And plus he's throwing in some very damaged supporting characters, you know, Jenny and yeah. Captain Dan and things like that around it. And so as perfect as Forrest might seem and that he kind of just is always able to, you know, run through no pound intended sort of situations, um, he has some very sort of damaged people around them that are very real. And that, that part is also interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at Lieutenant Dan or Jenny in Forrest Gump, they are they are playing out their psychology, their family history, their wounds, their problems, their worst tragedies that have happened to them, and they feel like it's psychologically real. 
uh, and that's what I mean when I say real, is it's like psychologically, based on who they are. I think a writer kind of, of fiction kind of has to be a little bit of a psychologist because you're saying, given this person's history and what they've been through, how would they be now? How would they react in this situation? How would they go about pursuing whatever they want in their lives? And you know, it's gonna vary greatly based on where they come from and what led them to this point. So, um, yeah, it's not it's not easy to do that really well, but when you do, I think audiences respond by totally buying in and being compelled by this psychologically real feeling person that you're putting on screen or on the page. I'd love to hear your story in terms of was there a certain film that made you want to be a writer, your choice in in your college major? Yeah, when I was in high school, the film The World According to Garp had a big impact on me. It was about a writer whose mother was a nonfiction writer, and my mother was also a kind of aspiring nonfiction writer. Very different from <laughs> that character, but <laughs> but still, that, that movie was the first movie that I was like, there's something that I related to in that movie that was different from any other movie I'd ever seen. It made me think about you know, somebody wrote that, you know, which was a phrase the Writers Guild used in an ad campaign once to get respect for writers. Somebody wrote that. Uh, they had all these lines of dialogue on billboards, you know, don't forget a writer wrote that. An actor didn't just come up with that right. on the set. But anyway, the world of Corinna Garp had an impact. And I think when I went to college, I, I knew I wanted to pursue something creative uh, that involved writing, whether it was fiction or screenwriting or maybe even music. And so, after a year or two, I settled in on, on becoming a film major and, and maybe trying to become like a writer-director um, because a lot of my favorite movies at that time were writer-director movies, like you know Woody Allen movies of that era, like late 70s, early 80s. Um, and um, so I, did, I pursued being a film major in my undergraduate in Ohio, which is my home state, and got a four-year degree. BFA in motion picture production, which of course guarantees you a job in the industry immediately when you show up with that. Uh, and then I decided I was going to move to Los Angeles and uh, become an assistant because I kind of knew, you know, that whole start in the William Morris mailroom kind of thing, that I, I knew that that was a thing you could do. There were people that had moved out to LA from Dayton, Ohio, where I was from before me, who'd gone to my film school before me, who had these kind of jobs working as assistants at the studios and stuff. So I decided that's gonna be my path. I'm gonna get it. my day job will be one of those kind of jobs where I'll be like a secretary uh, and I'll just be writing on the side. And so that's what I pursued and um, was lucky enough to get into the Fox Studios kind of in-house temp pool where somebody in the human resources department had all these temps that every day they would assign to these different jobs throughout the studio where they needed somebody to fill in for a day or a week or a month or whatever because some assistant was on maternity leave or out sick or had just left and they hadn't replaced them yet. So I got my taste of all these different kinds of jobs throughout 20th Century Fox and the Fox Network. You know everything from like legal department to accounting and finance, like very corporate departments, but also some of the, eventually the more creative side where you're working on a TV show or working for a production company, which is of course what you really want if you're an aspiring writer. And so I did that for a number of years uh, and eventually got assigned to Tom Hanks's production company just as a temp, uh, which turned into a full-time assistant job working there uh, where it was basically him and his 
his main assistant who went with him on location and had been with him for years and me. I was like the guy in the office like answering the phone and opening the mail. He was off shooting Forrest Gump for like five months at one point you know, on the East Coast, and I was the only one there in the office kind of holding down the fort, so to speak, at his little production company that was based at Fox at that time. So while I was doing that, I was writing scripts on the side, and um, I had worked as a writer's assistant on the show Picket Fences right before I worked for Tom Hanks and got to know other people at my level, other assistants, which is a really helpful thing to do. You know, they say, do you have to move to Los Angeles to be a screenwriter? You don't have to, it helps. But one of the main reasons it can help is if you're the kind of person that gets a job in the business like that where you're around people doing what you want to be doing and you meet people at your level who are also trying to do the kinds of things you want to do and you can sort of help each other. And that certainly worked out for me because um, I switched from writing features on spec to I took a class at UCLA Extensions Writers Program where I have taught now in recent years myself okay. on sitcom writing. I started writing a spec script for the show Frasier in that class. And then when it was done, I showed it to this friend I'd worked with on Picket Fences who was a fellow assistant, but also an aspiring writer who had just gotten an agent. And she liked the Frasier and was willing to show it to her agent. And the agent liked the Frasier enough to want to sign me. So I got this agent while I was still working as an assistant for Tom Hanks. And this agent functioned kind of like managers do now. Managers weren't such a thing back then, where she was giving me notes. You know, She signed me off it, but then she immediately wanted me to rewrite it with all these notes she gave me before she would send it to anyone. And so then she had me, after that was done, she had me start my next one, which was a Mad About You, and then after that, a Friends. So I was like pumping out these sitcom spec scripts, because in those days, when you wanted to work on staff on a show in the 90s, they more valued specs of existing shows, whereas nowadays it's, it's original pilots that writers tend to use for writing samples to get into TV writing. You know, a staff job like that, which is normally how you get in, is you, know, you get hired as like a staff writer on a show if you're one of the lucky few, fortunate few. So that's the direction I was headed, but I still had the, the Tom Hanks really great sort of assistant day job. But I was really starting to think, eventually, I'm going to be a professional writer now. I mean, I have an agent. She's sending my stuff out. I got some meetings here and there. Um, but then things took a funny turn, an amazing turn, which is to one day Tom Hanks read one or two of those scripts because his assistant, who I worked kind of under, I think, recommended, oh, you should have Tom read your you know, it'd be fun, whatever. I don't know. I was never going to ask him to read my stuff or help me in any way because I knew this is my sure. job. This is He's not there to help me do that. And uh, he apparently liked the one or two scripts he read and decided that I had talent. And he told me my talents were being wasted. And he offered me this, like, amazing, life-changing promotion. The week of my 30th birthday, uh, I had a wife and a kid. And she was a teacher. And I was making $700 a week, I think, or something like that. So it was a really good time to get a promotion uh, where I was going to help him, uh, basically help him develop this miniseries he had sold to HBO as an executive producer, which was From the Earth to the Moon, which was about the Apollo space program. He had done the movie Apollo 13 and was a lifelong space junkie. And at this point was the biggest star in Hollywood. He had gotten to that point by then. And so he was able to sell this idea for a miniseries, a very expensive 12-hour miniseries where we would dramatize and recreate the entire Apollo program, right? All these other missions, you know. So I then helped him kind of figure out the sort of outline for that and like find writers to write the episodes, you know, professional screenwriters that were already established, unlike me. 
Um, but eventually I got to write one of the scripts. And then eventually that script became a decent script because it took a long time. <laughs> and then I got asked to help rewrite some of the other scripts. So by the end of that production, From the Earth to the Moon, I had kind of been an apprentice producer on the whole thing. So I got a co-producer credit on the whole thing. And I had writing credit or pieces of writing credit on several episodes. And I just like learned all this stuff from just being on it from beginning to end and being able to be kind of in the middle of it because I worked for Tom and he was the executive producer. So I was on the set and in the editing room and did everything uh, or watched everything. And um, so when it won the Emmy for Best Miniseries and all the other big awards, I got to share in those awards because I was one of the producers. So that was really how I got my start. Uh, I was very fortunate in that the first thing I wrote professionally not only got produced, which you know most things that you, writers get paid to write still don't get produced, right? You can make a whole career writing things that don't get produced. Not only did it get produced, but I was a producer on it and won these major awards for being that. So it was kind of a fairy tale beginning of a career that ha that I owe to Tom Hanks and to you know the sitcom writing, which you wouldn't think translates into historical drama about the space program, but I somehow managed to figure out how to, how to write for that series, even though it wasn't the kind of stuff I was doing on my own. From the time that you got to Los Angeles from Ohio to then you know working for Tom Hanks and, and being part of these projects, was there a moment where it hit you where you're like, wow, this I'm actually doing this? Like, was there some type of a, anything that happened, you're out maybe getting lunch, where you, you know, it's easy to lose sort of focus in LA and you're so busy trying to do something and looking for a parking spot or an apartment, whatever, that it's easy to get lost in that you're really actually doing what you set out to do. Was there a moment where it hit you? I think there were a few moments. It, it does, things tend to happen in a gradual way and they build one, one on top of the other. So it's like the first day I'm working at a movie studio, exciting, I get to drive through the gate, they let me in, whatever. But then that becomes just an everyday, normal, boring thing, right? And so then the next thing and the next thing, but a series of things that were the big things, probably what I told you about when I was offered that promotion was probably the biggest thing. Um, but there were moments, I mean, even as an assistant, when Tom Hanks won his back-to-back -back Oscars for Best Actor, I was the guy that took the statuette to the Academy the next day to get the nameplate put on, because that's how they did it. I don't know if they still do it that way. So like driving in my beat-up Toyota with an Oscar for Best Actor on my seat, that was a moment, <laughs> for sure. Um, there was a moment during the filming of Band of Brothers where I got to uh, ride on a private jet from, from London to LA with just Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, and me. We were the only three people passengers on the jet. Oh, wow. And Steven was like showing Tom these, both of us, these like Stanley Kubrick movies and giving commentary because he was close friends with Kubrick. Uh, you know, that was definitely, I mean, I was already like a sort of producer on the project and had meetings and I'd worked with Tom for years by that point, but Steven was a new thing to be around him and the, the two of them and just be us was definitely a moment that you, you know, 10 years later we'll be telling people on YouTube about, <laughs> or 15 years, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of those moments. I mean, I've got, got to meet and work with, you know, some very well-known, successful, great people and got to be, you know, um, you know, just see different levels of 
hey, I've done this now and I've succeeded at this or this has happened, certainly getting to go to the Emmys and go on stage as part of the group, it was a, was a big moment, you know, of course. And that was the moment that everybody back home was like, oh, you've really done something now. That's definitely val validates what you've been doing when you have that, you were on television on an award show right. next to Tom Hanks kind of thing. In a tux. Yeah, in yeah. a tux, yeah. <laughs> Do those jobs still exist? anymore in terms of you said there was a temp pool and I, I'm not sure how plentiful sort of this temping is anymore. I think they still exist. I mean certainly that path where you become an assistant like generally right out of college in your 20s working for an agency or a production company or just a temp at a studio. I think that definitely still exists. I don't know if the studios still have in-house temp pools in the same way they did then. I think they might have moved more towards outsourcing it with agencies. In those days they did both. But there's definitely a number of temp agencies that service the entertainment industry specifically. And if you just Google temp agencies Los Angeles entertainment, that front page of Google will pretty much have them all on there. And I think it's probably still fairly easy to apply to those agencies because they're always looking for new temps. And I don't know what, what testing they do. I mean, I know I had to do like typing speed tests and can you use Microsoft Word and this and that. Uh, they probably still do a little bit of testing and interviewing, but to get registered with one of those agencies, I think, is the, probably the first step and not so hard of a step, um, with, at least with some of them. And then hopefully they assign you places where you like it and do a good job and that gets you going. So let's talk about the hypothetical spec script. Let's suppose I want to get on a show. What would be my method to doing that? Would I write about an episode that already exists, you know, a, a continuation of one? Yeah, in television these days to get to be in consideration for getting your first writing job on staff of a show, which means you didn't sell your own original show, you got hired to write for someone else's show, which is still the much more likely scenario for a new writer, right? People are writing original pilots and hoping to sell them and get them, you know, on in front of an audience, of course, and there's always a chance that that could happen, but it's, you know, of course, very rare. Today, you know, people writing original pilots you know, within the industry, people that have managers and agents writing original pilots, if they don't already have a big track record writing for television or film and a lot of success, they're probably writing that as a writing sample to try and get a job on staff of a series. And what has changed in the like 20 years since I was doing that is that back in like the 90s and before, the traditional way to get hired on staff of a series was to write what they would call a spec episode of an existing show. Just what it's just some successful, relatively new show that people in the industry liked and respected. Like Seinfeld was the big show to do, like during its like second seasons, about the right time, where people are writing these their own ideas for an original Seinfeld episode that hopefully reads like a like a really good episode of Seinfeld. Like you read the script and you go, this feels like it could be on that show. It would be a really good episode of that show. They capture the voices. It's very funny, et cetera, et cetera. Not easy to do really well easy to do mediocrely, not easy to do well enough that people will go, wow, which of course that's what you want when you're a screenwriter is like to get that wow is rare and sought after, right? So back then, very few people wrote original pilots if they weren't already established because there was nothing to do with them. They weren't looking for original pilots as writing samples as much. They wanted to know that you could write in another writer's voice an episode of a show that already existed, which of course is what you would be doing if you got hired on staff. For some reason in the last 20 years, that has shifted a lot. What I've heard anecdotally is where in those days, 80% of it was specs of existing shows. 
nowadays it's more like 80% are original pilots that people are writing. And that is what is getting them managers and agents and getting them their first jobs on a series, on a writing staff. People still do write specs of existing shows. I think you definitely need to write them to get into some of the big fellowships that some of the studios and networks offer, which are great ways to try and break into TV writing. But what's much more in vogue is writers writing original pilots for series that they came up with and those pilots become their main writing sample or samples that they use to try to first get a manager and then get an agent, which you usually kind of have to go step by step and then have their managers and agents sending them to production companies, showrunners, executives at the studios and networks and streaming services uh, to try to get you noticed as a potential TV staff writer. And so how long would these spec scripts be? I mean, so it's gonna be like half hour content or? Yeah, it's going to be this. It'd be the same length as a typical script for the show you're writing for. Or, well, if it's an original, a show of the ilk of what you're writing. In other words, if you're writing a one-hour, clearly a network-style drama, it's going to be about you know, it's going to be like a 45-minute because there would be commercials, and then how many pages that translates to. You know, they say a minute a page. You can go a little long in a spec. Um, I would say a one-hour pilot. Uh, maybe like 60 pages would probably be the max you would want to go for for an original pilot. Um, you're really trying to sort of like copy what successful shows that are similar to yours would do in terms of length. So it's really helpful to read scripts, not just watch episodes of the kind of shows that you, inspire you that you would want to you know, write something in that genre, whether it's like an HBO type show or a Netflix type show. Nowadays, those services have shows that can have different length episodes and different length scripts so that they're not a standard like 21 minute half hour comedy on ABC kind of thing. It's a little more, there's some flexibility I think. So you don't have to be too nervous about the exact right number of pages, but generally you're emulating what is standard for the kind of script that you're writing. And why do you say it's so hard to make a great spec script, it's easier to make a me mediocre one. What's the comment? Well, when you're writing a spec episode of an existing show, I think it's it's easy-ish to write something where the characters talk kind of how they talk on the real show, you know, and you have the kind of jokes that you can imagine they would kind of have, but maybe they're not great jokes, but they're just kind of like sort of okay jokes, and the kind of story and kind of behavior of the characters that is their typical behavior. Like, it's not so hard to sort of mimic that it's hard to mimic it in a way that's as good or better than the actual produced show is. Because really for a, one of those scripts to stand out, I was always told it has to actually be better than an average episode. It has to feel like, why haven't they done this episode? It's like a great idea, it's perfect for the show, it's really funny, it's really memorable. If it's a comedy, obviously, you're going for the funny. And that's just hard to do really well. It looks, it looks easy, which is why I try to do it. It looks easy to write a show that you know that's a good show, to come up with your own ideas for stories for an episode, it, it, but to do it on a level that would that, that someone would hire you based on it is not easy. And, and normally the show you wrote it for is not gonna hire you. They're probably not even gonna wanna read it. They probably will be tougher on it than any other show would be because they know their show so well. And they probably aren't looking for writers because they're already on the air and a hit. So typically when you're breaking into television, you're breaking in with a staff writing job on a brand new show that no one's ever seen before. You may not even love the show, but it's where they offered you a job based on reading your stuff. And it may be a show that gets canceled in its first season because most of them do, but that's kind of like the life of a, of a what they call a baby writer, a writer breaking into television and working on staff. 
but most of that doesn't apply as much today because people are writing original pilots instead of specs. But obviously it's really hard to write an original pilot that impresses people too, perhaps harder, because now you're coming up with characters and a whole situation that they don't know anything about and you have to make them you know, care about these characters, be entertained, be intrigued, and all that kind of stuff. And all of the problems of the show have to be really compelling. Whereas if you're writing a spec episode of an existing show, a lot of that has already been done for you, right? You just have to write a variation on something that someone else has already established. And maybe that's why nowadays those aren't valued as much because people can say, well, you didn't have to do as much to do that. On the other hand, when you write on staff of a show, a big part of your job is mimicking the voice of the showrunner, being able to execute the show in a way that they would like, the way they would have done it, which is a, not a skill that every writer has. <laughs> so to show you can write a, somebody else's show in their voice really well, I think still is a very valuable thing. But the industry is more interested in original pilots um, for writing samples, despite that, I think, these days. But you say it's rare that, let's suppose Seinfeld, I'm, I'm writing, you know, it's, it's still in existence, and I'm writing that, that I'm submitting this to, and thinking that I'm going to be in the writer's room for Seinfeld. No, I'm submitting it for Friends or something. Well, you're submitting, you're not even submitting it for Friends, you're submitting it for some show that hasn't been on the air yet. I mean, that's the reality, okay. because you, you know, your, your agent would be the one doing all the submitting, right? So first you have to impress an agent enough to get an agent, but once you have an agent, they're going to be submitting these these new potential writers to all those brand new shows that just found out they got a series order and now they have to staff up. Oh. The shows that have already been on the air, they already have a staff. They may have one person leave and they fill one vacancy, but th basically they're already there. So you're never, almost never going to get on a successful existing hit show that you love or that you would have written a spec of. You're going to use that spec to get on some brand new unknown show that you may or may not love or may or may not be right for, but it's they thought you were right for it based on your script, so there you go. So Eric, we've taken some questions from some viewers that have been willing to leave them on our community tab for YouTube. We have so many here, and apologies to those we don't get to. One of which is from Melissa Rose, and Melissa writes, is there one thing you feel is essential for a screenwriter slash writer to know before beginning, before starting? Um, well, there are a lot of things, but I mean, I think that the reason I wrote this book about you know making the idea process a priority is really based on my feeling that you need to know that choosing the idea that you're going to write is so important and so essential and not easy to pick an idea that's going to be a worthwhile thing to write. Worthwhile meaning it would have a chance at you know moving you forward in the industry. It, it's always worthwhile to write and have the experience perhaps for yourself and your own learning and growth. But from a, from a commercially marketable, can move my career forward standpoint, to me the, probably the most important thing, which is why the, I, you know, I wrote this book about this, is is to understand what the elements are of a, of a viable story idea and to make coming up with one your main priority and take the time and get the feedback necessary on your just ideas before you launch into six months or a year or even several years writing and rewriting a script because you can write and rewrite a script endless times but to make it somewhat better but if it's based on an idea that really was always gonna have a tough time moving forward no matter how you execute it a manager or an agent would call that somewhat wasted time. So that's probably my first obvious self-serving answer based on my book being about that. <laughs> well, it makes sense. Maybe we can go back to actually some more of the words in this um, problem acronym 
so original. You know, we, we hear so much of that. It's got to really have this writer's voice and all that and, and, and got to be this fresh sort of, but hasn't so much already been done? It seems like it'd be yeah. very challenging today to have something quote unquote original. It is tough, I think, to be really original. Um, and, you know, it goes back to your question about writing things that are really personal to you. You know, sometimes the most original things do come from taking your real life or taking something you witnessed or experienced and using that as fodder for material. So there, there is, there can be a value for that if you can also do what I talked about, which is find a way to have perspective on it so you can make it viable, entertaining, compelling to you know millions of people that don't know you. It's not an easy thing to do. But you know, originality is it's a tricky one um, because you can only be so original because you know, so many things have already been done, right? So many types of stories and genres and types of story situations. I mean, I just saw Eighth Grade last night, yeah, which you know was a very original voice, uh-huh. um, but it's about something that we've seen four million examples of, which is a kind of misfit teen who the popular people are mean to, trying to find their way in the social universe of school. Like, is there anything that's been done more often than that? (laughs) But yet, you watch the movie, and because it felt authentic and real and specific and vivid and done not in exactly the way we've seen it before, and it had some currency because there was a whole social media aspect to it where she has like a vlog and she's on Instagram all the time. You know, it feels like it's very much about that problem for today's eighth graders in a certain setting. So you update it, you make it current, you make it specific. I think that's the thing. It's not that it has to be an idea that is so out there and different and special, because sometimes that can be a trap. If you try to be too original, sometimes you end up writing things that are contrived or hard to believe or hard to understand because your focus is on it has to be different from everything else. When a writer focuses too much on originality, I I wrote in this book, sometimes they're doing it at the expense of these other important elements of what makes a viable story idea. Like it may not be as compelling or as entertaining or as relatable or these other things because they're mainly focused on, yeah, but no one's ever seen it before. Doesn't matter though if no one's ever seen it before if it doesn't grab the audience or the reader in the ways that great stories always have. So you always have to balance the need for originality with those other elements. Um, That being said, you're right that an original voice is highly valued in a new writer. But it's like finding a way to have that original, I think authentic's a better word, that authenticity where things feel so real so believable, but so like well-observed and unique. And we haven't seen it quite this way before because something in this writer's way of seeing the world and people came up with this version of it that is very memorable, even if it's within the context of something that is somewhat familiar. You know, like, a sh- like if you look at Napoleon Dynamite in its day, kind of the same thing. Very original voice but it's about an awkward teen who doesn't fit in and people you know, push him into lockers, you know, kind of thing. But when you watch it, you're mainly focused on the authenticity, the originality of it, not noticing that this is a story form or a genre or a type of story problem that we've seen endless variations on before. So it's kind of like you're taking something that's been done in terms of a genre usually, but you're putting a very fresh, unique, current, specific spin on it. Right, I'm thinking of Pretty in Pink. Yeah. So, so that first sort of, you know, 
our generation, that was sort of the, the misfits movie, especially female character. And just uh, would, would that still work today? But yeah, you add in the vlogging element. And I haven't seen Eighth Grade. That's on my list. Um, but uh, something where, you know, she's in this sort of town and she sees like the sort of the, the Soch, and I know Soch isn't really used these days, but um, and sort of that looking up and looking to aspire. You know, and so I think anybody can relate to that. That's that's a universal thing. But yeah, you throw in the vlogging element, the social media. Um, but yeah, the sort of the high school party that everybody cringes at, you go to and 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 hope to be noticed. But you know, they don't really see you, and you sort of blend into the background type of a thing. Um, do you feel that it's still possible though to do that story over and over again? I know you said you've you've added in the or they they've added in these new things the the social media and, and the things that are current today, but that that story is very universal, whether it's male or female. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I think it is possible, and Bo Burnham proves it with that example, that you can do this thing we've seen so many times. You can instantly call up other movies that have that same component. I mean, it has that high school party that the character walks in and is petrified and <laughs> doesn't get noticed or gets noticed in a negative way. It has that very scene, but it has a unique version of that scene we've never seen before that feels real and feels very well observed and is very entertaining and emotional to watch. So to me, that's the key thing. Don't try and reinvent the wheel in terms of genre or types of story problems, but bring something fresh, specific, real, and original to your treatment of that, of that sort of genre element that we know is universally relatable because that's one of the really hard things is to make sure that what you're putting out there is gonna be relatable to millions of people. And the kinds of story situations that are going to be have probably been explored many times before because there aren't an infinite variety of them. There are certain core elements that you tend to see repeated over and over again in successful stories. That's why I love Blake Snyder's 10 genres in Save the Cat. It's my favorite thing about that book. And I always work with those 10 genres when I work with writers writing screenplays because I think he really pinpointed like the kinds of human situations that we've seen work over and over again in successful movies. And there are variations on each, but there are certain key core elements that are present and to sort of realize which one you're going for and then to really try and fulfill its elements, I think is a really helpful tool for writers coming up with ideas for films. Well, so the last letter in your acronym uh, for problem is meaningful. So taking, let's say, eighth grade or Napoleon Dynamite or Pretty in Pink or whatever in that sort of that high school, you know, not fitting in genre, what would be, what, what's the meaning that a movie like that could give? Because you could just see it as well. It's just, you know, hey, everybody had it tough in high school. It doesn't matter if you were popular. It doesn't matter if you were bullied. Everybody had it tough in some degree. So wh where's the meaning in that? So I think if you walk away going, what, everyone had tough in high school, what's the big deal? That means that movie didn't affect you very much and it probably wasn't meaningful to you, right? So meaningful to me is when we talk about like theme and what's a movie really about underneath its, its surface plot. What's the message or what's the underlying issue being explored or issues? And also what the audience takes home with them. Do they feel impacted by it? Do they feel it had some meaning to their own lives? As opposed to, I just watch these people have this thing happen and I sort of forget about it the next moment. Or it doesn't really, nothing that I saw feels like it impacts me and my view of the world and people at all. It's just a fictional story and when it's over, it's very forgettable. So meaningful in some ways is the most optional of these seven elements that I put in the book because certain movies 
like let's say transformers or something don't necessarily to be need to be so meaningful and have such a strong theme like that and i'm not dissing transformers or saying that it doesn't have any theme or meaning but certain kinds of movies if they're so entertaining and they have such a punishing problem that is relatable enough to a universal audience which when you have life or death stakes you usually have that one covered you know life altering stakes What's the other one? Original and believable. If it's executed in ways that, that do all those things, you, you could have a hit movie on your hands, even if it isn't that meaningful. But what most writers trying to break in are trying to do are movies that do have a lot of meaning because that's often what writers are most attracted to is the theme and the character arc and that kind of stuff that tends to give something meaning. I also think we talked about the originality and the whole executing something in a brand new way that feels very specific and well-observed and real that helps give it meaning to people because if they feel like they're just watching this contrived thing that was just there to entertain them but it nothing about it felt real or felt like oh in my life and my kids or my memory of childhood i can i went through that or it like touches me then it's not going to be meaningful to them so meaningful is maybe the most optional and the final one of the seven to consider but it can be the most important one in the end that like puts you over the top. Because if your script makes people really feel something and, and almost makes them think about their own lives in some way, even a, you know, a hardened professional reader in the industry, if it really makes them feel like I didn't just watch these remote people, but I connected and it feels like it explored something about the human condition that's relevant to me and to everyone, that's really powerful. We'll go back to another viewer-submitted question, and this is from Wicked West Films. Nice name, by the way. What advice would you give to a writer to make their stories stronger with more depth and meaning? Well, we kind of just talked about meaning a little bit, and... Um... Yeah, um, well, to, I mean, it's going to sound kind of facile, but it's kind of like these seven elements to really understand and explore each of them and try to, like, hit each of those is what makes to me makes things powerful like when you make sure that what you're writing is a punishing problem it is relatable universally relatable situation for your characters there is something original something believable the stakes are life altering for the characters all of that is what makes something powerful you also also want to be entertaining and it's going to mean something to people if you're exploring something that is not just your surface story plot but is something that has some depth for the characters. It's like if the characters feel something deeply and are going, something, going through something that the audience connects with emotionally and feels like they become bonded, like we talked about with the character, where they feel like it's happening to me. You know, what they're going through, I feel like I'm experiencing it. That's what really gives it a powerful impact. So, but all of these elements of story are all ways in which you achieve that because like the bigger the problem is the more important it is to solve the more the characters under kind of siege trying to solve it the more you're gonna have a better chance at the audience connecting that way so so much of it has to do with your choice of idea and the kind of the genre that it's in and what your basic premise of your story is to make sure that it's going to have the ability to have that powerful impact so this save the cat moment or this relatability, does this have to happen in the middle, toward the end, in the beginning? I mean, even in the sharp objects, there's just a moment where Amy Adams stops for a gentleman who's about to cross 
and they have this quick exchange and she gestures for him to like go ahead and he says kind of like no you go ahead and then she nods she's not like stubborn about it where no 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 go 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 she she's like and you you see okay i trust her i like her mm -hmm. in that moment but then there's a lot of things that happen that where you're like hmm not quite quite sure about this person but that little moment right there and that happens fairly soon makes her relatable i think it does help classically in the beginning if the character, if you're all about making the character be someone that the audience can connect with in the very opening pages. So that that can have to do with them being a nice person like that, but it can also have to do with them having problems that we can instantly relate to and feel something about. So even if they're not that nice, like in eighth grade, she's not necessarily so nice, but she's going through such just terrible problems that most people can relate to, you can't help but start to get emotionally connected. So to me, it's a, it's a combination of likability and the problems. The less likable they are, the more immediate, obvious, and big the problems need to be for the audience to have something to grasp onto emotionally. I think when in doubt, it's good to also be likable, but there are certainly some stories that succeed with characters that aren't necessarily classically likable. Um, <clears throat> but I would say, it can be very counterproductive if, you're, if your character starts the movie kind of a jerk because you're trying to arc them into a nicer person at the end. If they don't have really massive problems they're facing that make us relate despite them being a jerk, it can be hard for the audience to want to engage and stay with, in my opinion, a character that's just kind of really unlikable. Um, it's, it's rare that that can work. I'm not saying never, but it's rare. And I do see a lot of scripts where that's the, 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 the choice the writer made to make the character unlikable in the beginning because they're so focused on character arc. But it can undermine the story if they're so unlikable that we have no reason as an audience to really want to stay with them. It's not as easy to get an audience to want to, to join you on that character's journey as you might think. You kind of have to make them want to, <laughs> I think. So, so establish that fairly early. I think, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Okay, because those kind of those first few, the first impressions count kind of yes. thing. Yes. Interesting. So we have another viewer submitted question from Leo. Hi, Leo. How would an inexperienced writer enjoy writing if their writing skills aren't spectacular, but they love the idea they have? How do they not get discouraged and lose motivation afterward? Well, that's a definite challenge for all writers is getting discouraged and losing motivation. Um, you know, it's uh, it's really a mental or psychological game to stay with it in the face of maybe other people not being excited about the stuff that you've written, which I think all writers go through. I certainly have gone through and still go through at times with stuff that I am writing. So you do have to, you know, it's this, this weird combination of following your passion and your beliefs and your instincts and what's interesting to you while also listening to sort of feedback and guidance about what makes something a compelling story for others. Now, some people, I suppose, can enjoy writing and not care that anyone else ever gets it or likes it. And in that case, you're, you don't have such a problem because you just, I'm writing because I enjoy it. I don't necessarily even show it to other people. But most writers don't want to just do that. They want it to show it to others and have others like it. Well, that's where it's out of our control suddenly because others are not us, right? So uh, it's easy once others don't respond well to get discouraged. But the reality is every script that anyone has ever written probably didn't impress many people on its journey to wherever it got to. In other words, it's just hard to write something rare, to write something that 
people are going to give you the reaction that you wanted from it. For most people starting out, that's an elusive thing to get to that place. So it's kind of like you, you have to have this kind of almost Zen approach of I'm just doing this anyway. I'm learning and growing and I'm going to get there and like not let anybody's criticism derail you from that intense focus on this is what I want to do and I'm going to continue to follow my voice but my voice or my instincts are going to change somewhat when I study the craft and when I get feedback from others and I just look to make that feedback useful as opposed to devastating. You know, what is the thing that maybe is missing for people in my work based on the feedback I'm getting? And can I wrap my head around what's missing and why and apply that understanding to either the next draft or the next thing I write? For most people, it takes many scripts over many years to get to the point where you have a chance at the stuff you're writing really being successful with others who might matter to you. So I think just also knowing that every writer goes through that and there's this book called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield that's a great one for this because he really talks about how a part of us is afraid and resistant to just doing whatever it is we said we wanted to do and we'll use any excuse to not do it including others criticism or our own self-criticism and it's kind of like to be productive and to stay with it you just have to sort of push all that aside and just continue going and turn the criticism into something productive instead of letting it get you down including your own self-criticism which is really the hardest the hardest thing i think is to be able to kind of put that aside use it when you need to critique and analyze your work but not always be in the critical mode because if you're in the critical mode you're not in the creative mode it's kind of like you have to switch one off to get to the other the creative mode is a more loose free open relaxed trusting mode where ideas just sort of come but in your if you're in that mode of what's wrong with it and what do other people say is wrong with it and what do i think is wrong with me ideas generally don't come that are good ideas in that state. So you almost have to like work on managing your own emotional state and your own viewpoint in order to be able to get to your best material. I know I've mentioned this before, but in adaptation, the two, the two Nicholas, you know, Charlie Kaufman and just the, the one that's just invents lightning and the other one that, that just overthinks everything and, and how paralyzing that is. Yeah. You know? so. Yeah, Donald Kaufman, the brother, has a <laughs> may not be writing the greatest material, but he's got a positive attitude toward himself and others that is infectious and leads to a lot of ideas coming you know, <laughs> that do end up being successful in the context of that movie. Right, but I mean, it, it's a great it, because we've seen that so many times in life where that really it's like it's a self fulfilling prophecy in either direction. And so and I think writers are especially prone because they're always in their heads and they're overthinking things. That's the nature of why they're writers in some sense. I agree. And, but it also can really handicap them in yeah. a lot of ways. So do you remember when you sort of let up on yourself, even if you still deal with, um, you know, I mean, we all do, seeing ourselves, whether it's, you know, on tape or whatever is, is, is always sort of a, a cringeworthy moment for everybody, I think. But do you, do you remember when you sort of were able to come to more of a Zen place with that? It's an everyday practice. Every day is a challenge to feel like, uh, to sort of put on the, the right mindset to be creative and to be sort of like allowing and trusting and letting go 
and not being self-critical, too self-critical. So it's not a one-time thing that you get to and you're just like, oh, I don't do that anymore. You may get more used to how you can shift your kind of energy into that other mode. And so you have a way to do it. But I like what the war of art would say is that that resistance that's in you is like trying to stop you and it will do it every day. It's just like there's a part of us that's going to be self-critical to the point of paralyzing or counterproductive or self-sabotaging. So I really do think you have to learn how to every day sort of fight the battle or, you know, see it for what it is and not let it just take you over completely in your thinking so that you have a choice and can get to that place where you can move forward. But I don't think it ever like completely just goes away. We had a question come in from a viewer, Jacob. He writes, how do you share your ideas without getting run over by other writers or bullying them? Without getting run over by them or bullying them? How do you share your ideas? Yeah, I'm assuming that it would mean, you know, like people kind of poking holes in your idea and, and allowing them maybe to sway you from your voice. I, and I'm just assuming, well, sorry, Jacob. That's the tricky part, yeah. I mean, you can't avoid I mean, pick who you share it with wisely and pick the time that you share it and the reason why you're sharing it and what you're looking for from sharing it and what you tell them you're looking for when you share it. But even if you do all those things, other people are out of our control and they might come back to you with opinions and reactions that are very, uh, you know, unhelpful to you or emotionally discouraging or devastating to you and you may not be able to avoid that. I mean, you can certainly work on handling your own reactions, but you can't control what they're going to say much as you might try. But if you're conscious about all those things and sort of being targeted in who you're sharing and why and all those things, and also noticing that they may say things I don't like and I don't have to let it destroy my opinion about whatever I'm writing. However, I am open. I'm doing it because I'm open to hearing other opinions and I want to have a sense of how others are reacting to it. Any one person is not enough though. It's probably you need a consensus of people and people who know something about what you're trying to do, people that understand the craft are a more valuable opinion than just kind of friends or even other aspiring writers may not be as valuable of an opinion to you. So you always have to take what others say with somewhat of a grain of salt, I think, while being open to if I get a lot of the same opinion, maybe there's something worth looking at there. I think it, a lot of it is you have to be like a detective who's interested in knowing what are the things that aren't working for people and then I'll figure out why and I'll figure out how to solve them. If they say you should do this other thing instead, don't listen to that. Don't try to do their fixes, but listen to what their issues are, which they may not even be articulating because people try to be helpful and tell you, what if you did this instead? What you really wanna know is why do you not like what I did do? And people sometimes don't want to say it because it's too hurtful, like I was bored, I didn't care, stuff like that. Or they may not even know how to articulate it, they just might know I didn't like it, you know, which isn't helpful. Which is why we try to codify some of these things of what makes someone like or not like something, right? So we can learn from that. So. I think it's um, you know trusting that your own voice has value and that you will find your way to address whatever problems you decide you agree are problems takes the power away from the other random subjective people who are going to say whatever it is they're going to say. I like that. I like becoming a detective and trying to solve it because in that sense you're taking out some of the personal feelings from it almost. You're almost you're acting as if a, you're a third party and then it's less you're you're less upset about it. Yeah. That's excellent. 
So you're are, something that you're able to practice on a daily basis. I know, you know, 6 a.m. hits and it's a, it's a new day for all of us in many different things that we deal with. But is that something that you try to really implement? Yeah, I'm very careful and selective about when I share stuff and who I share it with because I know I'll have a tendency to get very upset <laughs> depending on what people say. And sometimes it can threaten to derail me from whatever it is I'm trying to do or thinking there's any value in it. So I've really learned to be, to really be careful and to, to do it with the right people at the right times for the right reasons. At the right times, interesting. At do the right times in the process, because uh -huh. sometimes you're ready. It really helps if you've moved on to another project and you're not even thinking about this one anymore to then show it to people, because then if they don't like it as much, you already have this other one that you're now interested in. <laughs> so I'm a big believer in putting one down, maybe not even show it to anyone right away, work on something else, come back to the first one and you'll have new perspective and you'll see things you want to change. So you make your own change. You never had to show it to anyone at that point, right? But eventually when you do show it, maybe have a couple other things that you're working on so that that one script isn't your whole world anymore, right? Because when you're in the middle of it, it's your baby and you better not have your baby get abused by other people, right? right. So it, it helps to get that distance from it. And uh, a lot of it is you get your own distance from it, you'll be able to give yourself notes that you couldn't do when you were in the middle of it. And you finished it to some extent, whether to it's some just extent. the first draft, right? right. Yeah. Where, whereas you're not, you know, I'm gonna throw this thing away, forget it. So-and-so said this, because you've, you've actually gone through it. So that's, that's interesting. And it's almost like a form of protection in a way. It is. Yeah, that's another thing I got from the War of Art. He talked, uh, Stephen Pressfield somewhere, I, I noticed him saying he would like finish a project every six months. And I said to myself a while back, I'm gonna write two scripts a year to the point where I feel they're, they're kind of finished. They've gone through multiple drafts of my own notes. Maybe no one else's notes have yet come into play, but they've really been rewritten significantly based on my own notes. And the way I get there is by taking a pause, moving away, coming back a couple months later to like finish one, but always have multiple scripts in the hopper. So some are done, some are semi-done, some you've just started. And so it becomes a little more of a factory as opposed to I have this one project I've been working on for three years and it's all I ever think about every day. And if someone doesn't like it, I'm devastated. You know, that is not the most helpful way to go. And I've done that. So another viewer submitted question from Nolan Putnam. What's the most helpful habit you've created in regards to screenwriting that's allowed you to become a professional? That's a great question. Um, is there one habit that's been the most helpful? Um, probably we've talked about most of them. Um, probably the most important perspective has been to see it as something I'm always learning and I'm always growing and that that's okay. It's not like I'm supposed to know it all and be perfect at it and the things that I write are gonna just be great automatically and others are gonna love them. To see it more as it's an ongoing quest of kind of a self-development, self-education. I'm learning with everything that I write what works better and and, and not as good so that it's like uh, it's like this, this journey of development that you sort of like are gonna enjoy the journey as opposed to I have to get to a certain place, which it's easy to feel that way because the world works that way where I have to get the agent, I have to get the sale, I have to get something produced, I have to raise the money and make my movie. Like there's all these goals we might have in the world and a lot of times they're out of our control. And if you focus only on those goals, like what I can get, what I can achieve, instead of what can I express? 
how can I just do what I decide I want to do, which is be a writer and be learning and growing and find some satisfaction in that journey? Because when you turn it into, there have to be these quantifiable results in terms of money or others' reactions or whatever, then you're putting all your power in this thing that may or may not ever happen, that you can't for sure make happen no matter what you do. So I think that attitude, it might seem counterproductive because it's like, well, to be successful, you want to, you know, professional, you want to focus on the professional goals, right? Well, you you do to some extent and you are open to feedback and you are list, you know, you are educating yourself. I didn't say just go in a hole and just do what you want to do and never and shut the outside world out. I'm saying engage with the world with feedback, with education, with trying to understand and get better so it's growth, but making it a positive growth for yourself that is about making me better and making my writing better, not making my results better. Because when you focus on how do I give more, how do I write something that's really gonna impact people more, how do I do that? How do I figure out how to do it? How do I get better at it? You're then about giving to other people and you will achieve success, I believe, more when you succeed at giving more you will get more automatically as opposed to how do I get the success? How do I get the breaks? How do I get the right person to read it? How do I get people to like it? It's more how do I create something so wonderful that people will just automatically like it? I'm not even concerning myself with that. So it's like taking the power into your own hands and being about how you can improve your stuff and yourself as a writer Having that approach, I think, is a is a stronger, healthier approach that's going to lead to success more than if you do it the other way. Yeah, that's amazing because I mean, especially too, if if you do live here in Los Angeles, which you said that you don't necessarily have to, but it definitely helps. Uh, you're bombarded every second with reminders, whether it's billboards or someone going by you of somebody else that's higher up on the proverbial sort of food chain and it's kind of thrown in our face and it's it, it's really wonderful to think of the unplugging from that because that's almost the anti sort of culture here and and then I mean was that something that was always a part of your makeup or you had to learn oh no I have to learn I mean I still it's again it's like an everyday practice that thing again right an everyday practice of being about I'm just about the purity of expression and growth and learning and improving as opposed to the how do I get the result that I want from others it's because it, we don't naturally do it that way <laughs> we have to sort of like decide that's how I'm going to approach this instead right and I guess too in the last few years and not to get too morbid but we've seen people who have achieved tremendous success obviously not be happy and then you have to ask yourself well then why am I doing this yeah. You know, and it has to be essentially, and is sort of, you know, fall of your bliss as it sounds, you know, sort of bumper sticker on the back. It, it has to be about that because, you know, we do see so many people that have achieved these amazing results and the end result for them showed that it wasn't enough. I do think it really is about making the daily practice, journey, writing, whatever, enjoyable. Being at peace, enjoying what you're doing each day finding a way to make it that way so that the journey is a positive journey and not be so caught up in the destination. Um, because if you enjoy what you're doing, you're gonna do it more, you're gonna do it better, you're gonna to wanna to learn more, but it comes from a certain level of confidence and trust that it's gonna, it, that it's, what you're doing is worthwhile. And 
if you measure that only in like money or career statistics, you know, you may never get there and you may always be insecure about that. So, um, but people that want to write, usually there's more of like a passion, more of a purity of, I just want to do this for some reason. And so if you can really hold to that, uh, as opposed to thinking that what, what the results are of doing it is what matters so much, you probably have a better time doing it. You'll be happier, you'll be more productive and prolific. And the results usually actually will follow from that. And just real quickly, when you before you chose your major for film and television, what was your goal before that? What was your major? Um, when I first started college, I I experimented with being an English major and you know thinking of writing fiction, poetry. I I experimented with being a music major um, briefly, but I pretty quickly you know I took some of the introductory film classes and I realized this was the the medium that I really wanted to try to write for. Right. And and you said just that festivals really aren't about the laurels. I think I heard you say in another interview. Um, I thought that was actually beautifully put, but maybe I don't know. Maybe you didn't say it. I don't think it. I, I said it, true. but that's no, probably okay. true. Okay. But that, okay. Let's say let's say you didn't say it, but that goes back to what we're talking about. That the the end result, you know, is not really what it should be about. And I know it's easy to theorize that and and, and say these things, and and then we all have to kind of live in a reality that is life and you're competing with people all the time and that's something that happens in preschool and it happens in adulthood but to really have something that we get from it that's more than an accolade I think is do you think that's what keeps you going in terms of why you continue with it I'm not sure what keeps me going to be honest I mean I think that I keep going like most writers because it's just like what I do it's what I've decided I do what I want to do and I have the I'm engaged with the challenge of getting better and and writing things that really fulfill why I wanted to be a writer, that are the kinds of things I loved that I wanted to create more of in the world. And yes, part of that is, well, to get it out in the world, I'm going to need other people to help me do that and finance it or whatever. But uh, it's, uh, it's kind of like I haven't achieved yet what I wanted to achieve, even though I've worked on some big things and won awards and made a living as a writer and stuff. There's, there's a lot of the kinds of projects that I always got into this because I wanted to do that I still want to do those. And there will probably always be more of those. So I think there's just this desire to create and express that never seems to quite go away. And it's also just a chosen field and a career at this point. So it's, it keeps me going because it's just the, the path that I'm on and, and have chosen and have no reason to unchoose. Yeah, I mean, I could say the same for Film Courage, and it'd be great to have videos get this amount of views, but at the end of the day, it has to be about, you know, the conversation, yeah. like today's conversation, yeah. and that's worth it for us. That's what we do this for. So I could see, even though I'm not a screenwriter, you know, how it has to be, there has to be something else aside from, you know, well, we're hoping Eric's video gets, you know, millions of views or whatever. It has to be that the process of it was enjoyable, which it has been, so. Amen. Thank you. Glad to hear yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Great way <laughs> to end. For me as well. Yeah. <laughs>